Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Polybites podcast, bringing you bite-sized politics every week. This week, we've seen a continuation of the theme from last week, which is Novak Djokovic and shortages. Last Friday night, just after 6pm, the announcement came out that Minister Hawke had officially cancelled Novak's visa on the grounds of public interest relating to health and good order. It was at this point that the media circus began, and it's worth noting that this was, once again, appallingly reported by the majority of the media, with a few key exceptions. Getting the announcement just after 6, by 8.45pm that same night, the first hearing kicked off with the original judge we'd seen earlier in the week on the Monday, Judge Kelly. Now, this went until past 10pm at night, with both sides presenting arguments on the case, and we heard Wood, who acts for Novak, air out the minister's statements on this decision, that none of it was linked to his paperwork. From here, the case was actually referred on to the federal court, and there was another hearing on Saturday morning. Then, on Sunday morning, we had the case heard by a full bench of the federal court, so three judges, where we then got the decision on Sunday night that they were upholding the visa cancellation decision by the minister. To recap this entire weekend in detail would end up being the majority of this podcast, so for now I'll just highlight the interesting parts. Novak was deported for his perceived anti-vaccination views, and his side argued repeatedly that he's never actually spoken out in support of any anti-vax groups or anything else. And the statements that they were quoting were not only missing the second half of his statement, but they were back before the vaccines actually existed. It is obviously worth noting, which has been one of the most misreported aspects of this entire case, that this decision had nothing to do with his paperwork. Minister Hawke actually admitted in his statement of reasons that he knew Novak was of low risk to the community and of transmitting COVID. Following this decision, Following this announcement, a number of legal groups spoke up about concern with the precedent that was being created, with the government deporting someone for how they thought their views would impact the public, and the government didn't like those views. As many people have pointed out, we as a country have cancelled visas before. But one of the things that is actually different here is that this was cancelled on the public's perceived views that Novak held. As mentioned by a number of these legal groups, this is not something that the individual themselves can necessarily control. And obviously, a lot of it has been pushed by the media. Anyway, since then, rumours abound that he may actually sue our government for millions of dollars due to mistreatment. The original court finding of the first cancellation of his visa being due to improper process would undoubtedly support his case, and the fact that he travelled all the way here because he was told he could. Obviously now, he's also lost the opportunity to play in the Australian Open. How much he could have earned, and has now lost as a result, after being told he could come here, would also undoubtedly form a cornerstone of this case. Whether or not this happens remains to be seen. It would no doubt be a remarkable international incident, but given the Serbian president's current opinion of our government, I suspect if he chose to do this, his government would be supporting him. One of the worst parts about all of the misinformation that was perpetuated about this case was the prime minister himself coming out the next day and falsely stating why Novak had been deported. I mean, Scott lying isn't new, but this is just ridiculous. And it just added on an international stage to how ridiculous this entire situation was when you have the Prime Minister not even making accurate statements about why his minister deported someone. As staffing shortages continued to hit around the country, especially in Victoria, 
This week, the government officially declared a code brown for medical staff. In hospitals, I'm told that this has another meaning, but it basically means here that this is an emergency staffing shortage and staff can be recalled from leave, as well as some services can, if needed, be suspended. It's worth noting that after speaking to some workers, it's been like this for quite a while in terms of how severe the shortages are and people being asked to come back from leave. A code brown does make this easier for HR to have the conversation and call them back, even though for the most part it's probably not a great idea for staff retention. Part of this process with the code brown and starting to cancel services was the IVF treatments getting caught up. There was a viral video by a woman named Melanie, which ended up having over half a million views, and she ended up on just about every news network in Victoria, about the impact this was having on the women who participate in IVF services. One of the original arguments presented by both Melanie and the IVF community was that these services do not in any way overlap with normal hospital services, and therefore, suspending it shouldn't have an impact on the pandemic. So why are you doing it? Funnily enough, within a matter of days, this decision was backtracked by the government, with Sutton coming out and admitting that yes, IVF is separate to normal medical function, and therefore can be allowed to resume. And Dan came out and said it just got included in a bulk services cut. As fantastic as this decision has been in terms of how swift it was, Let's be honest, they admitted that it was just laziness that it got included in the first place, and it makes you wonder, if this is how they make decisions, how many other things have been included in the past that didn't need to, but it was just easier. As part of this code brown and the severe staffing shortages, it's also come out that some places are having to cancel category one surgeries, and the government has also started putting retired nurses and student nurses in wards. On top of this, Victoria has also had to call in the ADF to help drive ambulances and help answer triple zero calls, with ambulances being on code red multiple times in the last month, which means severe delays in response. As said earlier this week, they had 18 months to prepare for this. That was meant to be the whole point of locking down. So instead, what they did was locked down, backlog the system with care for all the people that couldn't access timely medical care throughout all the lockdowns, then fired hundreds of healthcare workers, then the peak hit. It's really hard to imagine this going any worse. As everything continues to fall apart in Victoria, they continue to push the booster line with very little logic to support it, but that hasn't stopped them reducing the interval and boost is now being available for people at three months. This has turned remarkably contradictory within the same state. Earlier this week, Sutton tweeted an article saying it was good advice that in the very first dot point of the article quotes virology principles and that people should possibly wait one to three months for a booster post-infection. Now, this is in direct contrast to the random experts they're trotting out at the presses, as well as the DHS advice getting shoved down everyone's throats, that's saying that people need to have it immediately after they are no longer symptomatic. Earlier in the week, I snipped together a video of this expert saying this to get it immediately, then saying that it only lasts three months, and then also saying they don't actually know if you can contract Omicron twice. In the exact same presser, Dan got up and said people were only doing their part now if they'd had three doses, that it isn't an optional nice to have, and it's needed to protect people. While these goalposts were out floating somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean, after being moved once again, a few hours later after this presser, one of Dan's triple vaccinated ministers tested positive and is now in isolation for the next week. I will admit, I'm struggling to hold it together on this one, on how stupid some of this is becoming. But I tell you what, I can't wait for the upcoming winter flu campaign where it says as soon as you recover from the flu, make sure you get your flu shot. Does that sound stupid and illogical?
imagine that. Now, none of this illogicality will obviously stop them threatening to mandate it, with Dan even going to National Cabinet with a request that it be mandated Australia-wide. As Scotty has said so many times, they don't support vaccination mandates. But, you know, apparently they don't care about them existing either. That being said, while the Victorian state government can mandate it, it would be nice, as previously mentioned, at some point if someone brings up the impact this may have if they choose to do it. For example, if other states don't do it, does that then mean other people in Australia can't travel here? Does that then mean other people internationally from a tourist perspective can't travel here? For whatever reason, none of this ever gets discussed. Who knows if they will do it? We're looking at multiple different decisions being made in the country still to this day, but it's really hard to put anything past them. As we get closer to school beginning again, many parents have asked if I think that they will mandate it for kids. There's obviously always the old online viral rumour that this will happen, so I wanted to address this really quickly. While I'm sure they have considered it, not only do they not have time to mandate it before school starts again, children attending school between certain ages is actually a legal requirement in Victoria, so they can't suddenly change that entire requirement by their own rules. Similarly, it would get very messy, very fast, trying to mandate it for kids, in the middle of pushing number three for adults, after also dropping all the other mandates for kids being able to access anywhere else. So why would they make it just for schools? Hopefully some parents can feel better about this. It's also come out kids in classes will not have to isolate if someone in their class tests positive, but it looks like Victoria may continue on with the masks. This will mean that in schools, they cannot close windows and have the air conditioning on, but they're expecting these children to wear masks in an Australian summer heat. We are ruled by absolute geniuses. In news outside Victoria, Western Australia has completely lost the plot and has indefinitely delayed their border opening that was originally scheduled for the 5th of February. As of now, no one has any idea when the hard border will be lifted, and they've changed the requirements that the only people who can travel to WA and get an exemption to travel there are for compassionate reasons and must be applied for. You must also be triple vaccinated, complete a negative rapid test prior to departure, complete a PCR on arrival, and complete a full 14 days quarantine. There is no indication when any of this will end. Disturbingly, a lot of the locals are thanking their state daddy, yes, this is one of his nicknames, for keeping them safe. Now, given this has to end eventually, this is not really possible to keep up indefinitely as the rest of the world has finally clicked onto, as well as the rest of Australia, not quite sure how these people think this is going to go, as opposed to delaying the inevitable. But looking at the media that's come out about the state of WA's medical system, you have to think that that had a big part to play in this decision because that thing is not okay with no COVID. So who knows what's going to happen when it finally does hit and who knows what's going to happen to McGowan's popularity. In big global news, England has come out and said they will drop almost all COVID restrictions. While this should have been an inevitable step regardless, it's openly discussed that much of this was driven by the number 10 party scandal, where, for those who aren't aware, the government got caught having parties in lockdown. While citizens were told they could only meet one person outside their house, it's come out that there were staff sent down the street with a suitcase to load it up with booze and bring it back for internal parties. Everyone's a little bit surprised that Boris Johnson has actually survived this scandal and kept his job. Remains to be seen if that stays the case. But more than that, it will be interesting how this impacts Australia, as we have a tendency to copy other people. As mentioned, we rarely have an original idea, and we're usually about three to six months behind the rest of the world. So whether or not we adopt this policy and drop it all, particularly relating to the elections here, remains to be seen.
For now, we are only three weeks into a new year and it's shaping up to be one hell of a year. See you next week.